and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, uh, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, it is, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to, the, to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I uh, give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you uh, for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Uh, complete the week of this one. And we will give you uh, the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Thus far the reading of God's word. Now, please uh, turn, if you will, to the uh, Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8. This will be our New Testament reading. I'm sure a very familiar passage and a very encouraging passage for many of us, a passage we go to in times of difficulty. Uh, we'll be reading verses 26 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we do uh, thank you for the reminder from Elder Mick that your word is powerful both in its preaching, uh, being preached, and in the reading of it corporately, God. So we thank you that we are able to hear your word uh, openly acknowledged, openly read for our edification. Our Almighty Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, we ask that you would grant that our hearts, being freed from worldly cares and concerns, would hear and understand your holy word with all diligence with all faith, and that we might rightly discern your gracious will through it, that we would cherish your word, that we would live by it with all earnestness to the praise and honor of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's fair to say that all of us uh, appreciate a good love story. If we don't appreciate it, maybe we're not the sappy type, at least we recognize a good love story, right? It's, it's ingrained to us in many ways. We recognize when we've seen, in, whether in uh, cinema, whether in books, whether in real life, when we see a beautiful love story uh, in front of us, right? We have these archetypes that we know so well, the, right, the damsel in distress who needs saving, right? The, the knight in shining armor who comes to her rescue, you know, the uh, beautiful uh, true love's kiss that always ends every romance story. Well, in preparation for our sermon this morning, I uh, re-watched this last week, uh, probably one of the best examples in my recollection of a, uh, I would say, a near-perfect love story, and that is The Princess Bride. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. I think it is just a perfect example in many ways of this, you know, this uh, thing that we all recognize, this beautiful love story, right? This unbreakable bond of love between Buttercup and uh, Wesley. 
Princess Buttercup's undying devotion in the face of you know, uh, risking, or, uh, you know, risking losing that love. She is uh, unfazed. She says, he will come for me. Wesley's undying commitment to her facing uh, all these various obstacles, risking his own life to come and save her, to claim her as his bride. You know, doing things time and time again that would seem inconceivable, perhaps, to some people to rescue her. And here I'm tempted to quote the priest, right? This uh, true love story. I won't do his way of saying true love, but you know what I'm talking about, right? We love these stories. We're drawn to them, these beautiful stories of a man and a woman falling in love, overcoming obstacles to be with one another. And here this morning, of course, in our text in Genesis 29, we have what I would argue is a true love story, a beautiful picture of this love between Jacob and uh, Rachel. The story is... Truly a classic love story. It shows that what we see even in our own films and books to this day. And as we consider this love story between Jacob and Rachel, I want to ask the question, why? Why does Scripture put this story in the Bible? Why does Scripture, why does Moses, as he writes this, go out of his way to structure the story in such a way that it has all these elements that we recognize so well? So as we consider this story between Rachel and Jacob, of them falling in love, of them getting marriage. Of course, there's some obstacles in the way. I want to make three observations answering that question. Why does the Bible present this story to us? And the first observation that I want to make this morning as we consider this text is this, that we are all looking for love, that we're all looking for love. As I've already said, verses 1 through 20, the beginning of the story is really a true love, a, you know, a, a archetypal, a quintessential love story. Let's kind of review the elements to make that case, right? A man journeys from his home to this new country, this foreign place, and then immediately he sees Rachel, who we are told later she's beautiful in appearance. She's a knockout, right? And he, uh, you could say, is uh, smitten with her, right? It's this, as we see in other stories, he uh, is in love at first sight. With this, there's this serendipitous encounter between them. It's not just any woman, but it's actually his relative. It's someone that um, he was kind of destined to meet, right? He's looking for his father or his uncle Laban, and it turns out this is Laban's uh, daughter. It's a little strange for us. This is actually his cousin, so we won't get into that, but, you know, that's just part of the culture of the day, right? This is his cousin, his close kinsman that he finds. He falls in love with her. It's love at first sight. And then immediately, what does he do? Well, he performs a feat of strength to impress her. Right? He lifts up this giant stone uh, off of this well so that he might water the sheep. He wants to show how strong he is to his new love. And then, of course, there is that true love's kiss that we see so often. He meets her, he introduces himself, and then he kisses her, and he weeps with joy. He's so happy to have finally met this one who he's been searching for. There's a problem, of course, as there is in every love story. He doesn't have a penny to his name. He's left his country in haste with nothing with him. He's broke. So what does he do? Well, he goes to her father and he says, I'll serve you for seven years. I will do whatever it takes. I'll work uh, my tail off so that I will be able to marry. I may be able to care for this woman. So he works for seven years. And then we're told at the end of these first 20 verses, the end of this love story, this beautiful statement. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Right? We want to say, oh, that's so beautiful. Right? He didn't even feel like time had passed at all. He was so intent on marrying this woman who he had set his love upon. You know, these elements, this could be something you would find even, I would say, in a you know, Nicholas Sparks book of our own day, these quintessential elements of a love story. I haven't looked it up, but I'm 
you know, I put money on it that this has been made into a Christian romance novel. But, you know, this is such a beautiful story to us. It resonates with us. And so, again, we want to ask why. Why does Scripture tell us the story and tell it in this way? Well, it is because, as humans, this story does hit us in a certain way. It does reflect the fact that this isn't just a modern thing, right? Our, our kind of, uh, you know... Um, uh, overemphasis or over con- cons- uh, consumption of romance, but this is a human thing. This is a uh, timeless thing that we all know, and we all are again looking for love. We love stories like this. It's not limited to our own time or culture, but it's something we inherently know to be true, to be beautiful. A story like this, but also we love stories like this. We resonate with them because many of us have experienced stories like this in our own lives. And many of us have fallen in love. Many of us have met that one who has swept us off our feet, who we will do anything for. And we have met them. We've married them. You know, first comes love, then marriage, then the baby and the baby carriage. But more than this, not only does it resonate because we've experienced this, but also we love stories like this, I think, because for a lot of us, our lives don't look like the story of Jacob and Rachel. Right? For many of us, maybe we have lost a love like this. We've experienced at at one point, and then that love is gone, whether through death, whether through, uh, you know, parting of ways, whether through a traumatic experience, but we've lost that feeling, that experience that we once had. Maybe for some of us, we've never had that experience. Maybe we're longing, we're still looking and seeking to find the, the one, as our culture so often talks about. And as we are longing for this, as we're looking for this, as we often desire this in our own lives, this can lead to some perversions, to some twisting of that natural desire to be loved, right? We see this in many forms of escapism, right? That we can plunge ourselves into a false reality where all we are consumed with is looking for that kind of love. This, I think, is why romance novels are so popular. They're always on the top of the bestsellers list, even to this day, right? We can fall into daydreaming, imagining what it would be like to find a love like this, and it can consume our attention, could even go beyond this from just mere imagining, thinking, daydreaming to things like looking at pornography, right? Things like infidelity, things like adultery, where we're so uh, you know, desirous of this sort of feeling, this sort of emotion, this sort of connection that we're willing to destroy and wreck things like our families, like our churches, so that we will feel that feeling again. Again, it could be twisted, perverted. It could be consuming us because we want it so much. This is, I think, part of the reason why uh, at least the statistic I found says that 20% of marriages in the U.S. will have some form of infidelity in them because people are looking for love. They're looking for that feeling that they think that they've lost, that only that, you know, uh, that sinful relationship can promise them. And even when we think of good love stories in our own lives, either our own case or those around us, even the best love stories that we know in our own day, they don't last I think this is so perfectly captured in the first few minutes of the movie Up, if you're familiar with it, right? This beautiful montage of Carl and Ellie, the main character. Uh, Carl is you know, meeting this, uh, this friend as their children, and then their friendship blooms. They grow together. They, uh, their, their relationship goes deeper and deeper. They get married, and then it follows the course of their love story. And of course, as you know, at the end of that montage, his wife Ellie passes away. So even this beautiful story, this, you know, I think perfect example of what a love together, a love for a lifetime looks like, even that doesn't last. It ends. It's temporary, even when it's good, when it's a blessing. 
I think this is also the reason why for as many songs that we have in our day about love, about finding love, about wanting to be in love, we have uh, an equal amount of songs about losing love, about falling out of love, about heartbreak. I think Nina Simone, a famous singer-songwriter, says so well in one of her songs, she says, you've got to learn to hide your sorrow and go on living as before. What good is thinking of tomorrow? Who knows what it may have in store? You've got to learn to be much stronger. At times, your head must rule your heart. You've got to learn from hard experience and listen to advice and sometimes pay the price and learn to live with a broken heart. We've got to learn to live with a broken heart. That's her summation of the human experience. And you know, even as we expand this beyond just the realm of romantic love, of falling in love, all of us, I think, can resonate with that sentiment. Not all of us are married. Not all of us will be married. But all of us can resonate with that line. If you live long enough in this world, all of us will have learned and have learned to live with a broken heart, to to live with unmet expectations, to live with loss, with betrayal, with heartache, with pain. We all know what that feels like. And of course, Scripture is not uh, dumb to this. It's not uh, immune to this aspect of our, our reality. Scripture knows this all too well, that we live in a world that is filled with heartbreak. Even our story that we read, even this text in Genesis 29 is realistic. It shows that... Things don't always end the way we hope that they will. There is not, in this text at least, a happily ever after. So that's what we want to consider in our second point this morning. So first, we are all looking for love, but secondly, as this text continues, we see that our love story is broken. Our love story is broken. Well, as we all know, every good love story ends with a wedding. And as we go to verse 21, Jacob is ready for that marriage. He's ready to get married He comes to Laban, he says, I want to, you know, he says it pretty bluntly, but he says, I want to be married to my wife. I want to to know her. I want you to set up all the arrangements so that we can finally be married. So they have this big wedding, you know, extravaganza, this great great, uh, celebration, this feast, which is really a, you know, a wine feast, a drinking feast. And then the night of the, you know, the, the, the marriage, the night of the consummation, he's given his bride. And then, as we all know, the next morning, there is a big surprise, right? Behold, exclamation point, it was Leah, right? This twist in the story. It's not Rachel. It's not the one he's been working working for for seven years to marry. It's her sister, Leah. We don't know why exactly how this deception happened. It's probably a combination of things. You know, this was at night. Uh, At the time, women, when they were married, were, were usually wearing veils, so he didn't probably see her face, and of course there was a lot of wine going around, and on top of that he was very eager to consummate things, and so with all those factors combined, he sleeps with Leah, in the morning he realizes what's happened, and he has been deceived. He goes to Laban, why have you deceived me? What have you done to me? As we see this event, uh, these events unfold, we might you know, think, poor Jacob, poor guy, all he's been doing is working hard for his loved one, and then you know, Laban pulls the switch on him. Laban deceives him. Well, that might be a fair assumption. If you know the broader story that this is a part of, if you you know Jacob's story, Jacob's background, you know that things aren't that clear. It's not just that bad things have happened to Jacob. It's not that he's the the victim here. The text here is making clear in the elements that it provides for us that Jacob is actually getting his just desserts. He's getting exactly what he has asked for. You recall the story of Jacob, even from the beginning, right? As he is being born, as he's 
uh, coming out of the womb with his twin brother Esau. He's grasping at the heel of his brother. He's trying to seize what isn't his, trying to seize the birthright. When the two brothers are grown, there's that famous scene of, you know, he's cooking stew, Jacob. His brother comes in famished. And what does he do? Instead of caring for his brother, instead of giving him food as he's about to die, he says, no, I'll give you that food, but you need to give me your birthright. He tricks his brother. He deceives his brother. He manipulates him so that he might gain power. He might gain that birthright. And then even after this, he deceives his own father. He goes in, he lies to his father. He says, no, no, I'm your son Esau. Give me the blessing. And he seizes it. He grasps after the blessing time and time again. So now in this story, as we know that about Jacob, know that about his history, we see now all of this, all of these events, all these decisions he's made have turned and come back to get him. Right? Just as he has deceived his own father in order to gain the birthright, now we have this other father who deceives him. And what is the rebuke that he gets? You know, he goes to Laban, why have you done this to me? What does Laban say? He says, it's not right to give the younger one priority. It goes to the older. The older one gets the birthright. She gets to be married first, rebuking him for his own sin. Right? You stole the birthright. The older one is the one who deserves that. So we see this master deceiver, Jacob, has been outmaneuvered. The deceiver has been deceived. Right? It's not karma, but it is poetic justice. It is this ironic reversal of all that's happened. He sought to flee his own country to get away from his sin, to get away from his past, and yet we see that it comes to find him. He's reaping what he sowed. He left a trail of destruction. He harmed his brother, his father. He ruined those relationships, and now he has been deceived. It's caught up with him. And so we see Jacob here as he is genuinely in love. He wants to marry Rachel. And yet, because of his own actions, Jacob has sabotaged his own love story. He's trying to escape his past, and yet his past comes back to haunt him at the worst possible moment. Well, just like Jacob, have not we also sabotaged our own love story? Right? It's not just, as we've said, not just that we live in a world of heartbreak, a world of pain and sorrow, but... As we think about our own standing, as we think about ourselves in Adam, right? what, did, what was the promise for Adam? That he would live happily ever after, that he would be with his wife forever, that he would be in the presence of God, that he would be able to enjoy all of creation, to be in perfect fellowship with his heavenly Father. And yet what did he do? He threw that away for the temptation of the serpent to be God, to do it on his own. Even in our own lives, as we consider our own actions Often, right? Every time we choose sin over faithfulness, over obedience, we are sabotaging our own love story. We betray the fact that our loves are twisted, they're corrupted, they're bent inwards on ourselves, that we were made to love God, we were made to love one another, and yet we are turned inwards. We are seeking our own pleasure, our own gratification so often at the expense of others. Even as we think of the, the story of God's people, the story of Scripture, which is so often told as a love story, right? It's so often told as God pursuing his beloved, pursuing his bride. And yet what's the constant uh, refrain in scriptures, the constant prophetic word, right? Is that the, the bride, the, the wife is being unfaithful, that she's going after other lovers, right? This language of adultery to show our, our constant tendency, even as God's people, to go after things that we ought not go after, so yes, it is true, we all want love, we all want to be loved. What we also must recognize is that we so often love the wrong things. 
as the saying goes, we are so often looking for love in all the wrong places. So again, our second point, our second observation this morning is that our love story is broken. And we also need to recognize that we are the ones who have broken it. That we have turned our story from a comedy into a tragedy. From ending with a wedding to ending in a funeral. So as we consider this, as we think about this, when we want to ask the question, what hope is there? What hope do we have? If our story is broken, what hope is there to potentially turn the ship around, to turn course, to have things end with that happily ever after? Well, that is our third point this morning. So not only is it that we're looking for love, not only is it that our love story is broken, but our third point this morning, our third observation is that we need a better love story. We need a better love story. So as we think about this text as a whole, as we think about this whole you know, meeting of Rachel with Jacob, the, the wedding scene, the, the betrayal, the deception, and then the marriage finally at the end, he finally gets Rachel. What do we make of it? How do we think about it in terms of our own life, our own uh, you know, story as individuals, as the church? Well, you can imagine the uh, history of interpretation on this pa- passage is very broad. People have tried to make sense of who is who in this story, trying to make connection, right? Who is Jacob supposed to represent? Who is Leah? Who is Rachel? can get pretty weird. Some people have said, you know, Leah is the Old Testament church, Rachel's the New Testament church. Some people have said the opposite. That's not the point, right? The whole point of this story is that this is not the way it's intended to be. This isn't supposed to be a model for us to imitate, right? From the beginning, the story has been one man and one woman together. That's what a love story looks like. So there's this perversion, this corruption, as Laban gives both of his daughters to Jacob. And yeah, we I think still can you know, fairly ask, right? If, if we were to find ourselves in this story, if we were to identify with someone in this story, who would we identify as? Who would we most represent? And I think for most of us, we would like to say that we are Rachel, right? We are the beloved one. We are the one who is being pursued. We are the one who God has, is going after because we are just so beautiful and lovable. And I think if we're honest, if we consider ourselves in light of our own, life, or our own actions in light of Scripture, we are much more likely to be identified with Leah. If we think about the contrast between them, right? Rachel's described as beautiful. She's beautiful in form and appearance. There's nothing wrong with her. And what are we told about Leah? Leah had weak eyes. That's about it, which can mean a couple things. Either weak could mean bad, right? She had unattractive eyes, and that's the end of the description. She had bad eyes. Let's move on. Or it's a concession, right? You know, Rachel was beautiful. She had everything going for her. Well, Leah, she had good eyes. That was it. So either way, right, Rachel is obviously the point. Rachel is the beautiful one. Leah is the unlovable one. As her own you know, saying goes, she, even in this story, she is, uh, if Laban didn't intervene, she would always be the bridemaid, bridesmaid. She wouldn't be the bride. She's so desperate for love, in fact, that she goes along with the deception of her father. She knew exactly what her father was doing as she goes in to the wedding chamber to deceive Jacob. She goes in so desperate to find love, to be married, knowing that she is not the most uh, desirable candidate, that she deceives him in order to be married. And don't we so often do uh, similar things? Don't we so often... Like Leah, hide our unlovable parts, right? Covering ourselves with a veil. Just like Leah, we think, right, if, if they really knew who we were, they would never love us. If they really knew what we were like on the inside. If God really knew what we were like on the inside, he would never love us. 
So we too, like Leah, will do anything often. We'll go to any lengths. We'll go to any deception, any actions to be loved, to feel, to experience being desired, to be loved by anyone. So as we consider this story, I think part of the reason why it's here is not only because we resonate with the first part, but also because this story in its deficiency and the fact that it does not end on a high note points us beyond itself. It points us to, in fact, the greatest love story, not only of the Bible, but of history. We see this as we contrast Jacob, the bridegroom, with Christ, with our Savior, Jesus, who is described as the true bridegroom in the Bible. Right? What, is, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus is not deceived. It wasn't a shotgun wedding, but Jesus comes to the earth to seek, to marry his bride, right? Not deceived, not with a veil over her face, but Jesus with eyes wide open comes to this world to redeem a bride who it is evident from the story of scripture is unlovely. She doesn't have everything going for her. She is not beautiful in form and appearance. And what does Jesus do? Like Jacob, but even more than Jacob, he goes to any lengths he's willing to serve, to lay down his life even, for that bride. So again, what does this tell us? It tells us that we need a better love story than that of Jacob and Rachel. Put it simply, we need a love story that's not a mere human love story, but a divine love story. Martin Luther, in his Heidelberg Disputation, as he concludes it, his 28th argument, as he wraps up everything, his whole argument about the, you know, this theology of the cross versus the theology of of glory, he concludes by saying this. He says that the love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Contrasting that, he says the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. In other words, he says it's normal, it's, it's appropriate for humans to see things that are lovely and to go after those things. That's how we were created. We see something beautiful, we pursue it. We seek the good and the lovely and the beautiful. Yet, Uh, Luther says, God's love doesn't work like that. God's love actually doesn't find beautiful things. It creates beautiful things. And this is the great love story of Scripture, is it not? That in eternity, God sets his love on his people, his people who are in sin, his people who are unlovely. He sets his love upon them. Jesus comes into the world. He takes on flesh, the the one who had everything, right, who didn't need anything, he takes on flesh, he empties himself, becomes a servant, he even goes to the cross, he dies for that bride. Not, again, not because she's lovely, not because in eternity he said, you are so beautiful, I want you, but he comes to make that bride lovely. He comes to take away her sin, to take away her shame, to take away her judgment. He sets his love upon her and says, I'm going to make you lovely. In eternity, God sets his love, he sets his grace on Leah's, on Jacob's, on you and me, on those who are unlovable, who are covered in sin. And this is good news, is it not, right? As we consider our own lives, as we consider our unloveliness, as we consider our constant struggle with sin, as we know who we are, as we know what our hearts are drawn to, and we struggle day after day, even as we look at the church, we can become discouraged, Right? We look around us, you guys are a bunch of beautiful people, but we know the church is not beautiful often. The church struggles with sin, the church struggles with purity, and we can become discouraged. God, what are you doing with your church? What are you doing in this world? 
our hearts can wander. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something else out there, outside the walls of the church, outside of God's word. Maybe that will satisfy me. Yet we remember God came to love us. God set his love upon us. And more than that, he came to make us lovable. As you know, already thinking of Ephesians 5, the whole picture of marriage, the whole picture of a man and a woman falling in love is meant to model the love that Christ has for his church. Paul gives this exhortation, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is the, in one way we could say that is the gospel, right? That Jesus came to beautify his church, to clean away our blemishes, to make us lovely. So we can be encouraged that in this age, Christ is truly doing a work. He is perfecting his bride. He's making her beautiful. As we close, just like with any good love story, as I've said, every good love story ends in a wedding. And the Bible, too, as a good love story, ends with a wedding. I think you guys just finished the book of Revelation, but at the end, right, there's this beautiful picture of this you know, uh, wedding supper of the Lamb, of the, the you know, beautiful new Jerusalem, the, this marriage to end all marriages. And that's what we look forward to, is it not? We do truly look forward to a happily ever after. We look forward to that picture of the consummation when we will finally be with Christ, our bridegroom. We look forward to that day when the true bridegroom will come. He will remove all the sadness that we experience every day, the heartbreak, the sin that, you know, uh, that often blinds us or makes things murky as we look to the future. God will remove all that. He will eradicate our sin. He'll eradicate our double-heartedness. He will make us wholeheartedly devoted to him. So congregation of the Lord, the church, we are promised you and me, we will be made lovely, we are promised. Throughout the scripture, God has justified us. He has made us lovely, but he will perfect that. He will glorify us in that coming day. So we look forward to it, but we will be lovely. We will be beautiful, all to the praise of his glory and of his grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are reminded often of how short our love falls in comparison to yours. So we thank you, God. We thank you for your abundant stream of love and grace to us, that uh, love that moved toward us when we were unlovable, that love which came and saved us in our sin. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would work in us individually and as your church, by your Spirit to conform us into the image of your Son, that you would truly, and that we would long for you to truly make us a bride who is adorned for her bridegroom. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.